You are now listening to the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. I'm Christian Babcock, the host of the Hunter's Advantage Podcast. And what we do on the podcast is we talk to disruptive companies in the outdoor industry, talk about innovative hunting solutions that are changing the landscape, as well as offer you tips and strategy for more successful hunts. All in all, I just want to help you become a better hunter by providing you with high-quality knowledge and information that you can trust. Stay tuned. So this week on the podcast, I'm joined by Blake Garrett. He's a member of Full Draw Adventures and I believe Unfiltered Outdoors as well. So uh, Blake, why don't you give the listener just a little bit of context into uh, who you are and kind of what you're doing throughout the year around bow hunting? man uh doing a ton first off it's good to be here uh i tell you overall i own uh i own unfiltered outdoors with uh, my business partner john dittmer and we really wanted to kind of develop an app that anybody could get on their phone for free um that showcased hunting and, and had some recorded content and holds content from full draw and some other tv shows as well on there um, also holds content from our partners like Matthews and Sitka and Vortex. Um, there's a ton of, um, just a ton of information on it that people can go and check out, but the coolest thing for it. And kind of one thing that we did that kind of changed the industry is we stream live hunts through the app. So if you have oh, wow. the app, you, yeah, you get a push notification that we're hunting and you can literally go and, and watch it happen live. Um, really neat because, you know, everyone does Facebook live or Instagram live. Um, but those are all on the cell phone for the most part. We actually have converted our big cameras that we film shows with on television to stream the live. So it's in like ultra 4K um, real time. And it's exactly what's going through the camera um, to be on the episode of the, of the TV show that you see. So kind of a cool way to, to do things. And, you know, we've been in this industry a long time and it was something that we thought could uh, be very useful for what we do and just kind of changing it up a little bit. But other than running the app full time, I also uh, provide content to Full Draw Adventures, like we talked about. I'm on their pro staff and give them probably three to four bow hunts a year, typically. Um, help build a little bit with some marketing stuff and kind of the inner workings of the shows and the the uh, intro and things like that. But um, other than that, man, I just really produce content in the hunting industry for for marketers and for. Uh, for you know trail cameras whatever it may be whatever product we try to promote that do a bunch with social media a bunch on instagram things like that of uh just product promotion and try to capture some cool content and put it out there you know yeah no that's awesome so i mean how how did you guys tackle this feat of you know streaming your hunts live because i know a lot of the places i hunt you don't even get cell phone service so how how did you guys tackle that and and, and why did you why did you think that would be something that you know, hunters were missing or something that hunters would want to, you know, consume? Yeah, I think overall, you know, everybody, the mobile device in general has just become a mainstay in, in kind of what this generation is. And and the live aspect is really something that's kind of came onto the same same kind of scene. And, you know, it was funny because when we were, we were beta, beta testing it for two years, essentially, and the year that we dropped it, 
out to the public was the same year that like live PD came on television. And it was funny because it's one of the same things. I mean, those guys, the benefit they have is they're in, they're in a metropolitan area. So they get to, you know, they get to, like you said, they get to have great streaming and, and great service for us. We do fight that. We you know there's places that we can't stream things, um, completely live. And actually we're going to work on it this year because, you know, we have so many hunts that like in Canada, our moose hunt and stuff is just, just so remote. There's no sales service at all. Um, so what we'll do there is we're going to run like a semi live show essentially to where we can come back. And once we get into good streaming service, we can actually stream the hunt live. So you'll see it within hours of it happening if it wasn't live at the time. Um, so we're going to kind of go after that this year just to try to add more of the live aspect because it's just so rare for us. You know, we only, I think we've only streamed like, uh, four, four hunts where we, where we had really good signal all the way through the hunt. And, uh, it's, uh, you know, they turned out to be awesome and gosh, people were watching all over, but we want to try to add some more to that live aspect. So that's something else we're looking kind of into. Um, but yeah, when we got into it, I mean, the whole idea was we're going to just kind of see what the news broadcast places are doing and how they're doing it and then try to get that same equipment and try to get it transferred over. I mean, our app developers are great with kind of building what we wanted and, and still to this day are developing things and we're just trying to stay on the cutting edge of things and make things simpler and, um, you know, we're still working on it, but we have, we have some of the best equipment. I mean, we have some better equipment than what, uh, our, at least our local news agencies have for broadcasting, um, equipment. So that's, that's a nice thing that helps. No, that's awesome. I mean, do you ever like, uh, like update people on the app? Like, Hey, we're thinking we're going to, we're going to have a really good evening this evening might be one you want to tune into, or is it like, you know, every, every hunt you promote the same, because I feel like, you know, some evenings in, you know, uh, mid to late November, you know, you're going to have a, a, probably a pretty good hunt. Is there, is there any difference between that or say like, uh, you know, early October? Yeah. I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of times that, you know, it's funny because it's really, we all come from TV and. I'm a big cinematography guy, so it's tough for me to get the live aspect down because when I'm, when it's live, I mean, it's just raw. It's, there's no, no cinematography. There's no really anything. It's just raw old school hunts, you know? And that was something that we kind of had to go through a learning curve on. And that's something I still struggle with. And, and I'm kind of there and it's kind of the same way with, with going live. Cause you know, we hunt, I mean, we're in the woods just from September 1st, you know, we leave end of August and we go from September 1st and hunt all the way through the rut. I mean, we're every day, if we're, if we're not in the woods somewhere, we're probably traveling to it. So that makes it a little tougher. You know, we can't, we don't just want to go live every day, you know what I mean? And kind of ruin what our push notifications do, but mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. There's a lot of times that we'll, we'll hunt and we'll push a hunt through and then we'll just put out the push notification right before say like an hour before dark and hey we're in the tree this is what's going on but the coolest thing about it is that like people don't have to watch the whole live stream i mean i streamed a hunt in nebraska that was five and a half hours long of me sitting in a tree pretty much and extremely boring and uh <laughs> push notifications are i can literally sit in the tree and if i have a shooter show up i can send that push notification and you can tune in and watch it right then so that's kind of nice to the aspect of we go to to the viewer and no matter where those people are, if you're sitting on your couch watching TV at night and all of a sudden you get a push notification that there's a 150 inch deer in front of me and I'm getting ready to kill it, you can tune right in right there and watch it in 30 seconds and you're good to go, you know. So 
those are kind of the, the neat aspects of we just wanted to be able to go to the viewer and to uh, make it kind of easy and as quick as possible. Yeah. So how did you get started in all this, you know, working in the outdoor industry, uh, you know, social media marketing or, you know, working with big brands at the industry like Sitka? I mean, how did this all start? You know, where, where did the journey start for you? Yeah, I mean, it started, gosh, many years ago. I was, you know, just in high school and had a, had a VHS camcorder, <laughs> a big one. And we just started, <laughs> I mean, we all love to hunt and that's what we did, but we just started filming our stuff and, and slowly just kind of grew from there. I mean, we just got better equipment and started kind of trying to do better stuff. And I met, uh, I started with a show. The first time I went on TV was a show um, called Campfire Stories on Pursuit Channel and went there and um, I met Andy Wikers um, at the Iowa Deer Classic. He was the host of it and they were going to Pursuit Channel that year. And I burned a DVD of like the best hunts I had. And took them to him and we were like, hey, dude, these are the best, this is the best stuff I got, you know, can I be a part of your show? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And uh, and watched it, liked it. So I started kind of just, just a pro staff level. I mean, just like getting some product discounts and getting product, you know, for free or whatever. And just kind of producing shows from there. But um, from that point, it just kind of kept snowballing. And, you know, you start meeting people and you start getting better equipment and you start kind of self, you know, you know, teaching yourself, I guess, um, videography and some other skills and just trying to kind of work it. And, uh, overall, you know, I went, went with him, I was there for four years and then went to full draw, um, straight from there. And by that point I had already kind of made connections in the industry with, with some marketers and, um, some marketing directors or managers and, just started kind of building relationships and they, they liked the return that I gave them. And, you know, um, overall, you know, if you do hard work and you, you can promote somebody and promote a brand and it's a brand you believe in and you do a good job at it. I mean, you'll see success out of it. And that's kind of what we did and just kept going and kept going and work at full draw for gosh, four or five years. And then we developed the app and still work with full draw. And I mean, just kind of the same thing, man, just, just rubbing elbows with the right people. And, uh, and hard work and it kind of all came together to where it is now you know yeah i mean i assume there's a hundreds of points in the journey that we can't touch on and you know an hour time frame but i mean what is it what is the progression through this look like i mean you get out of high school are you like you know you're you're getting paid to do these shows or like is it like you know you're working on jobs just so you can just so you can go hunt on the weekends or hunt full time like what does it look like because i know a lot of people listening to this podcast are going to want to eventually get to a point where the outdoors can be their full-time job and i know it's not all always being out in the woods and hunting for a living i know it's not all that but you know what does it look like and and how did you kind of get to the point that you're in right now so I can tell you that, and I talked about it on that, the last podcast I was talking about earlier, like it, it's just a matter of uh, there's a big misconception in the hunting industry that everybody makes money at it full time. And I'm going to say I said 90% on that one, and it may even be 95% of the guys in the industry that you would think do this full time actually do it full time. I mean, the jury, like just look at the jury team alone. It's a giant team, but if your last name is not jury or you don't work in the production crew at like their home office, nobody's getting paid to go hunt. Like they have some incentives for kills and for video that they pay out. But overall 
if a you know one of their pro staff guys goes out and hunts seven states and doesn't kill anything or doesn't kill anything good with good video that they can actually use they don't get paid anything um so you know the large majority and i'm gonna say 90 percent, maybe even higher in this industry don't do it full-time um it's a really small amount of guys that, that do do it full-time and, and really those guys are a lot of guys you don't even you wouldn't even really recognize you know what i mean it's guys that are kind of behind the scenes it's it's either camera guys or it's production guys that are in editing and producing that kind of set behind the scenes and, and kind of create the stuff that are really making money that's that's worthwhile to take home um and i think a lot of it is just because of the overhead of what television is for uh, outdoor producers when you're talking guys are some guys are paying you know six digits just to be on television so when you have that overhead coming in you got to make a ton of money a year just yeah. to pay for you know just to get get flat with it so a lot of guys just work um i know a lot of guys that work in the industry are like um carpenters or landscapers or you know run a construction crew or you know guys that do a trade job but they're able to either run a crew while they're gone and still make money or they're able to make enough money in the summer to where they can go all fall and still make some money i mean there's always money to be made in the industry but to go into it and be like i'm just going to go film a, a television show for a living is a feat that i i, I honestly don't know that you could do alone and i i only know of a f very few that actually make money hunting you know what i mean i mean even for me the hunting aspect of it is a is a nice job but it's not it's a key essential to what i do but i don't make any money hunting if that makes sense like you know to go to go sit in a tree i'm not getting paid but right i have to produce the content to get paid and when you're dealing with a wild animal <laughs> to get paid on it <laughs> you know there, there's just a lot of people that can't that can't really um sacrifice or gamble what they're going to make for the year off of if a deer shows up or not and you get the video that's clean and you know what i mean and it gets produced so it's just more of a, a stepping point i guess but i always get and i always try to tell guys i get the question a lot the same one you ask of you know how do i get started what do i do I tell guys to go to school um go to college for marketing uh, go to college for video production, something like that, and come into the industry with a good marketing plan. Because overall, no one cares. The people who pay me don't care about me killing deer. They just care about me selling product. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to do kind of both. And that's really the guys who make it in the industry and can can go on with it. That's what you got to be good at. You got to be able to sell a product but also be knowledgeable in what you're doing to where people will listen to you when you promote a product. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it's this balance of like, yeah, you get to go out and hunt and stuff, but like you also have to carry yourself in a professional way. And, and, and also ex you have to establish some sort of credibility with your audience because that's the only way that they're going to, they're going to trust what you're saying. And it's, it's kind of tough too, because you know, you might have a, a smaller brand or something that's willing to pay you or actually give you a ton of free stuff. Um, and it may be not something that's your truth or something that you don't actually believe in. And so that's kind of something I've already seen throughout my journey of something or throughout my journey of the outdoor industry, you know, as young as it, as it is, is like, you know, if a, if a company offers me something that I don't believe in, like I, I you know, it, it hurts me to, to promote that. And so like, yes, you, you have to speak your truth, but it's also, it's also super tough because the path to monetization, like you said, it's not as easy as people say it is. 
Oh no, for sure not. I mean, it's it's tough. It's a tough road. I've been in, like I said, I've been in it for for twelve years now, and finally it got to where it, I could do it full time three years ago. You know, I did. I worked a full time job and did it part time essentially, leading up to that, just taking vacation time and trying to just capitalize on the on the small amount of time that I had and that I was able to get away with it. But I mean, overall, it's just about like you said. You know, you got to stay true to your brand and stay true to who you are, and you, you know, there's going to be some gimmick products out there and that's going to happen. And ultimately at the end of the day, you got to make the decision of, am I going to promote this product and get some money or am I not going to promote this product and hold true to my guns and, and wait for the right one to get there. And, you know, I, everyone turns down. I mean, guys that are up in, on this level will turn down um, deals with products that, you know, they may not believe in. And, and I think that that's, I mean, I think it's noble. You know, I, I agree with it a hundred percent. I think guys overall, you know, your word is really all you have in this world. And if you start tarnishing that with uh, promoting crappy products or things like that and kind of being a sellout, I mean, it's going to get sniffed out quick. Hunters, hunters can recognize other hunters very, very well. And it doesn't take long to realize if a guy's a real hunter or if he's just, just there for the limelight, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and and one more thing that you t- you touched on the the jury outdoors thing. It's it's so funny to me, and it's something that I've learned recently. I've had a couple of jury outdoors actually on the podcast, or guys from jury outdoors on the podcast. And uh, Greg Glessinger has actually killed two two hundred inch deer the last two years. Like he's killed one each year. And I was like, you know, what are you doing full time? You hunting full time? He's like, no, I sell radiology equipment full time. Yeah. And I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, dude, you've killed like two of the biggest deer that have ever come in our jury outdoors in like 25 years. And he's like, yeah, I know. He's like, I have a full time job. He's like, I still got to plan my, my vacation. So I just think it's, it's really important to like reiterate that and like speak the truth because there's so many people that want this job in the outdoor industry. And like a lot of people that I've talked to, you know, if you're not a videographer or, or in some sort of production role, then a lot of times those jobs don't really exist as much as you would think they would. Oh, no, not at all. That's, I mean, that's the biggest misconception that's out there. And I, I hate it because I don't want, I don't want young guys coming up into it, you know, just thinking that's, that's the end all be all. And that's what I'm going to do. Cause it's just not the case. And unfortunately there's some guys in the industry that kind of let that, let that cloud kind of get there, you know, of like, this is what I do for, you know, it's, it's kind of a bad thing. Like, well, you gotta be real with it because at the end of the day, I mean, I run, like I run an internship for, uh, videographers every year. I take one videographer a year on an internship and what mm-hmm. it, he, he essentially is with me in the spring and then he'll go back home wherever. And then in the fall, he'll live with me. I have a spare apartment in my uh, basement and it's got full look you know, fully furnished and everything. And he lives down there while we're here and he goes with me on the road and we live out of motels for two months. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a crap course on videography. And we try to touch on everything from videography to photography to some editing stuff. And we'll go into social media and you'll see how I run mine from the inside and things like that to where we try to help guys with job placement into the industry that are, you know, really excited about it. But, um, and I always tell those guys like, like, nine times out of 10, you're going to make more money behind the camera than you will in front of the camera. I mean, the guy in front of the camera has all the bills mm-hmm. and yeah, he gets the, you know, he may get the limelight or whatever the case may be, but if your true passion is in the outdoors, you're not in it to be famous. You're not in it for notoriety. You're in it to do what you love for a living. 
And if that means being a videographer, then that means being a videographer. You know, for me, it was an easy decision from when I was a kid. I had, you know, no one when I when I was a kid, no one was on television hunting. There was like mm-hmm. Buck DVDs and that was it pretty much or Buckmaster VHSs, honestly when I was a kid but oh I've watched a lot of VHS tapes (laughs) yeah absolutely those are the great times but nobody was doing it so I I knew you know my passion was so strong for hunting that I knew that I would you know I knew I would do it for a living and I'd tell my dad my grandma my mom and everybody I was doing it and they told me I was crazy because nobody did it you know but I knew it some way and even to this day like I have you know we run the app I do stuff for full draw. Um, I do social media promotion. I also outfit a little bit. Like I wear some different hats, all involved in the hunting industry, but I wear different hats just to make sure that I can make a clean living at it throughout the year. Because the biggest thing is, you know, in this industry, as far as the television side of it goes, is you don't know from year to year what you're going to make. So you may have a year that you make that you clear thirty thousand dollars. Or you may have a great year and you may clear $80,000, right? But if somebody's writing you a $30,000 check and they call you a week before your contract's up and say, hey, guess what? I'm not doing it. We've reallocated marketing money. You just lost $30,000 for the year. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that's a big thing. So it's really hard to, to really count on it. And even the successful guys, I think, don't want to give up their full-time job, their mainstay to fall back on just because of the, you know, inevitability of something going wrong throughout the year and a marketer drop or a business go, you know, a company goes out of business or whatever the case may be. Um, all that being said though, you know, like I said before, if, if the guys have the passion to do it and there's young guys coming up and listening and, and they want to get into it, the best way to do it is just, in my opinion, is just get good with a camera, start showing what you can do with it. Um, and build your schooling around marketing because whether you go in the industry and you market for a company that's in this industry or you go in this industry and market yourself, you, you need to have that because the marketing is where the money comes from. That's where everything is, is surrounded around. Yeah. I think one of the scary things too about the, the outdoor industry is like, you know, what if you had a have a bad year of CWD and like you're primarily an outfitter and now like your top like, 10 bucks you like got like seven of them gone and like so i mean there's so many things that can go wrong and like that's kind of something i've talked to my wife about is like you know i think it's tough to make it in the outdoor industry because like even if you have seven or eight different um you know diversified streams of income like still man it's so so dependent and um you know so like a lot of it can be up to a wild animal to walk down the right shooting lane or like you know, so it's, it's risky, but like, you know, it, I feel like you're, you're a good testament to, if you're passionate about it, you always find a way to make it work. Yeah. I mean, that's a hundred percent what I am. I don't, uh, in my opinion, there's not failing. It's not an option. Like my drive to hunts too much. Like I've, I left, a left two career jobs essentially, you know, um, that were great paying jobs that were, you know, had great benefits and all that. I left them both to go do it just because it's where my drive is and it's where my passion is. And, and to see it fail, I'm just not, it's, I'm just not going to accept it. You know what I mean? And that's, that's kind of got me to where I am, but I can tell you that it's, it's 10 times. I mean, you go through the lowest of lows and, and the highest of highs all in all and, you know, all in one. And it's a matter of just really 
staying focused on what your goal is and just riding it out and being very, very flexible with what you can do and how you can do things. And I'm fortunate enough to where I really don't have any other hobbies. I don't have anything else. I really, you know, um, anything that's expensive, that's an expensive hobby for me. I like to do, I mean, uh, everything's hunting 365 days a year. So it's really easy for me to, um, kind of keep that lifestyle going and, and, uh, maintain things and, and move things around. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, you just gotta, you just gotta stay versatile, stay flexible, and and stay focused. You know. Yeah. So I mean, segueing into you know this time of the year, I think uh, I'm living down in Austin, Texas, and it's uh, 105 degrees today. Was the was the high? So I mean, what are you doing this time? Where first of all, where what uh where do you call home as far as the state goes, and and what are you doing um this time of year to prepare for whitetail season? So right now, um, I'm in central Missouri. That's where I live. And, and it's, uh, just smack dab in the middle of the state. But, um, right now we're, I, I leave for, from Nebraska, um, on the 28th of August. So I pretty much am gearing up. I mean, I, I, a lot of guys, you know, throw reps of shooting their bow through the year or through the summer and all that. I don't do it for the most part. We spend a ton of time on the farms. I mean, I'm, I'm feeding uh, right now weekly. We're doing supplemental feeding still. We're getting ready to shut that down and and running cameras on mineral licks and trying to understand what deer are where and kind of what areas they're in. Um, doing some stand placement on some specific deer that are in specific areas. Um, just basic stuff like that. We're doing food plots right now too. We're just getting ready to start that. That'll be what I'll do leading up to when I leave. Um, and then I go back to my bow thing. I kind of got off topic. There. I don't shoot my bow all summer, but August 1st, I start shooting my bow and I shoot it every day, um, for the whole month of August. And then we jump right into our first time in Nebraska, which starts September 1st. So we jump right into that. So I found over the years that if I go to shoot my bow really hard in the summer, um, I'll either, you know, just, just get busy and I'll be kind of lackadaisical with my schedule of shooting it. And I'll end up actually tapering off right before I leave. Um, so by doing it this way, the last couple of years, I've been a lot more successful with it as far as just being, you know, kind of knocking the rust off and just really going through August really hard and staying focused on the bow and a whole month of just really shooting it every day and, and getting used to that, um, and getting ready to move out. But, you know, uh, that's pretty much it, man. It's just prep for the prep for the fall, getting ready for the craziness. Cause we go pretty much straight from. I go from one hunt in Nebraska to another hunt in Nebraska to a hunt in South Dakota. And then from that hunt down to Kansas, and then I come back home. So I have, you know, four hunts back to back to back to back. So essentially just getting ready to be gone for a month and a half and knock all those out, those Western hunts, and then um, come back home and, and hopefully get on some deer back here at home that we've had. So how much, or how I know you talked about uh, outfitting a little bit, how much of that land are you uh, are you curating and, and growing up for for outfitting acres, and how much of that is you know just for land that you're just going to hunt personally? So a lot of my my own fully guided stuff that we do um, is on ground that I hunt as well. Um, okay. It's I I don't really turn any ground down if I can get a line on it. So we lease everything and we manage everything we have. Um, I have a partner that kind of helps me with some some land down in central Missouri and, and it helps me kind of run things down there too. And we just pretty much find all the ground we get and try to lease it up and, uh, try to turn it into management for, for growing deer. And, you know, we run, so we only outfit, 
um, in the month of November. And I usually take four bow hunters and four rifle hunters and that's it. And we'll essentially, I travel, you know, so much early that we'll come back. And then that gives us about half of October to really find these deer and get them figured out. And I mean, lo and behold, there's always, always usually five or six bucks that we can't get killed. I mean, obviously with the, you know, we get two tags in Missouri, one early, one late. And I almost never fill my, my late tag. Um, if I don't fill it in rifle season and the deer lives through rifle season, it's, it's really hard for me to kill him. Um, knowing that, you know, he's going to go ahead and survive the year. So it, it takes a special kind of cold buck really that I would have to go kill late season. Um, that just wouldn't, uh, you know, in my opinion, amount to much the next year. And, and that would be one that I'd go after. But ultimately, like I say, we always have five or six different bucks that are just, just giants, just big deer that can go, you know, 60s plus deer that, that, uh, our clients usually come in and, and usually get one or two of them. And then they'll shoot some coal bucks also. And, and, uh, just kind of help us manage the farm. I mean, overall management of a farm is, is really just taking out that higher class of buck, you know, your five and five and up um, bucks throughout the year and just trying to keep that young, you know, that young group coming up of three-year-olds and four-year-olds to stick around because if we can take out those mature bucks throughout the year, then we keep that rotation. And then, you know, I've always said, if you kill the oldest buck on your farm every year, you're bound to kill a giant eventually. And it's very true. I mean, the genetics are there to do it. It's just a matter of, you know, you may have to shoot 140 inch eight pointer, um, to get a, you know, 160 inch three-year-old to stay. And that's what we try to do is just take out the higher class every year. And, and we don't do it for numbers. We don't, you know, when I say outfitting, we're not running 20, 30 hunters a year. We're, we're running, you know, six to eight. And it's really just to help, to help kind of offset the cost of what all the leases are that we do. Yeah. So, I mean, what's your, what's your strategy is in terms of, of leasing things? Like, do you have like a, like reoccurring leases that you do every year and you know, you, you go after those and then offset the cost with like, by, without fitting a little bit. Cause it's, so, I'm interested in it because I, I'd like to eventually do an outfit. I don't know at the, at what size or what scale, but you know, this is kind of something that I've come into recently is the idea that, you know, you lease the land and that's kind of your expense for the year. And along with corn and mineral and food plots and all that stuff. But, you know, how have you gone about like searching out these leases and, you know, making sure you're on good ground? Do you run trail cams first or what's your strategy behind that? No, really. I mean, it's a matter of, of area for us. And like I said, I really don't turn much down. I mean, it's hard to, you know, where I'm at, at least it's, it's really hard to find ground that's just worthless. Um, there's always ground that at least holds some decent deer on it. And especially in the rut. Um, but yeah, I mean, we look for, you know, larger chunks of timber, some ground, you know, the bigger, bigger, the better on, on acreage, um, and really ground that just hunts, right. You know, you can kind of have access from different points. Um, you can kind of spread guys out, you can spread out stands. You're not, you know, by hunting one stand, you're not blowing another stand with your wind. I mean, things like that. It's just huntability looking at it, but every piece of ground, every new piece of ground is a gamble as far as what it's going to hold on it for deer quality. Um, you know, almost every piece will have a mature deer on it, but like we talked about before, is he 130 inch eight pointer or is he 170 inch, you know, 10, um, really just a matter of getting in. We try to really multi-year stuff too. So a lot of the ground that we lease, we lease in like three or five year increments, um, just mm -hmm. so 
you know, the work that we do put in and, and walking deer, we know we can't lose that ground for three years or five years or whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, I mean, that it's all a gamble in the, in the aspect of once you find ground, but if you get ground in a good area, you can usually pick up more ground in that area and, and have, have good hunting. Yeah. I mean, how big, a how big, a I mean, sure it, it depends, you know, based on the property and you, know, you try to, you say you don't turn down a lot of stuff, but you know, how much ground do you have lease and, and what would, uh, what would you be comfortable? What would be the least amount of land you'd have, uh, you would need to have to, you know, run the outfit of the size that you have right now? Um, for us, well, see, you gotta remember, you gotta throw in the factor that we hunt a ton. <laughs> so right. it's really, it's a little different, but, uh, I would say, I mean, we have probably around 5,000 acres, um, total, but that's split up from everything from 800 acres down to our smallest tracks, about 30. Um, I, you know, I know guys who've killed 200 inch deer off 10 acres or five acres even. I mean, it's just about, it's just about having the right one. And really you look at a lot of guys like to, you know, get on Google or, or on X and they'll look at a piece of property and they'll zoom all the way into it and look at it. And it's, it's really more about seeing what's around that property for the most part. It's really about, you know, it may be just a little bit timber, you know, draw that connects one piece of timber to the other piece of timber. But if it's the right piece of timber on both sides of you, then you're on the highway by owning the five acre little piece of timber track that goes in between them. Um, so it's really just about zooming out, kind of checking out your area. Mm-hmm. I mean, for us, like right now, our deer live in the corn. They're in the standing corn. We have a lot of ag and they like to live in the corn this time of the year. And that's what they do all of really late July, all the way through August. But that corn's getting ready to go brown and it'll get loud for them. And, you know, the wind blows and, and dry corn. It's just a super loud sound. And they usually don't like that. They'll usually start pulling out of it then. And then, you know, when, the har- when they come in and harvest it, those deer have to suck in the timber for cover. So you kind of look at where your timber is and in large tracts of timber are always better. And, you know, we do a lot of things for as far as timber management with going in and hinge cutting things and trying to create bedding areas for them, um, for what we can do. But yeah, I mean, every piece of ground is different and every, uh, you know, there's no end all be all on what the best management strategy is for what you do. Um, I can tell you that, you know, here in Missouri, we can, we can supplemental feed in the off season essentially and through hunting season if you want, but you just can't Mm -hmm. hunt, um, an area that's been baited for 10 days. So you have to literally remove all the bait for 10 days prior to hunting it. So there's a lot of farms, you know, we know, um, we're not going to hunt, um, until November. There's some like rifle farms that just don't have a bunch of timber on them. Like those farms like that, will keep our supplemental feeding going just to keep a, keep an eye on what the deer herd's doing and try to help them out as much as we can and then go in and, and shut it down about a month before we'll, we'll ever go in there and hunt. I mean, just little tricks like that and mineral licks and things like that to where we can really just try to try to change the deer movement to what we need them to do in the area. And, and when I talked earlier about, you know, running cameras this summer, I mean, the summer months, we don't ever try to pattern a deer. Um, it's really just about finding out what area a deer's in. And then going from there, you know, we'll have a whole new game plan come September because they go hard horn. The the food that they're eating now, which is typically beans or, or standing corn, is is going to change and they're not going to eat that anymore. And everything goes into what acorns are here in Missouri is just 
the gold for you know late september to october so everything changes in that deer and plus his testosterone's up and all that so really right now the pattern of deer is just just not uh not worth it for us so it's more about just finding those areas and then you know if we got a farm that has great area uh, great deer on it and we can find another farm within two miles of it we're going to try to get it as much as we can and just try to centrally locate all of them yeah i think that's a great strategy I mean, one of the one of the hunts that I had saw that you had been on, um, just searching you up through YouTube was you, you killed a really cool deer last year. I think that you guys called Fuzzy. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that hunt and what's what it's what is it like? You know, hunting velvet whitetails compared to you know those hardhorned ones back in Missouri. Oh my gosh, it's like a dream. Like I. <laughs> I always say a buck's brain doesn't develop till his velvet comes off. Like they're, they're just a whole different animal in velvet. They, uh, they like to walk around the daytime. They're patternable. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun because it's really a chess game as far as, I mean, Missouri's Missouri has a lot of, a lot of timber that's kind of mixed in. I mean, everything, I guess I should say everything is the same for habitat. So if I have 500 acres, that deer has a three-mile circle that he could go into and get the same habitat he has on my 500 acres. You know, so there's a, it's a lot less predictability out of a deer, mm-hmm. and it's a lot more about kind of getting lucky. I mean, you do your research, and in Missouri, we'll go in and hunt a buck that we never had a daylight picture of. We'll just go in and hunt him just to try to get in his area and see if we can get lucky at the right time of the year on the right cold front. But, you know, out west and those velvet bucks, like, it's a it's a whole thing of just doing your homework. You just scout your butt off. And there's been hunts that, you know, I've, I've it's a it's a five-day hunt. I'll scout for the three of them, the first three straight through them, won't ever even, won't ever even go to the stand. Just because, I mean, I, I got to get it right once. That's it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. if I make sure I get all of my information to where I have the best odds to get it right that one time, then it doesn't matter if I hunt at all, you know what I'm saying? Until that one time. So for me, it's about really, you know, patterning those bucks. Velvet bucks are really, really cool. I've, I've had an infatuation with them just because I've, you know, grew up here and never been able to kill one, never been able to really hunt them, um, here in central Missouri. So we're always trying out to Nebraska and South Dakota and, and do that and try to, you know, really put the, put the work in them, figuring them out, pattern them up and then just get out there and hunt them and hope they daylight for you. Yeah, no, that's that's definitely one of the bucket list ones for me. I mean, I've I've seen countless deer in velvet, but to be able to hold one and harvest one, I feel like that's just a completely different animal. So one yeah. one thing that you did when when you shot that deer is so what are what are what's your thought thought process when you have a deer under the stand and maybe that's your maybe that's your best shot opportunity or one of the only shot opportunities you feel like you're going to get what do you what's your goal when you're ma- making a shot like that cuz i feel like a lot of people you know throughout this next season maybe the some of the listeners are first time bow hunters or it's or they're in their first couple seasons haven't harvested a deer with a bow you know what's your advice for someone when a deer's up real up and close so it's tough it's a it's a really it's a low percentage shot if you're not careful um i actually put that i think i put that clip on my instagram last week and asked that question of he's 10 yards and coming in what do you do you know and it was interesting reading the comments behind it because a lot of the guys were like no you know let him go wait for it and some guys were like you know take the shot whatever um in that situation that buck actually uh i took the shot on him i, I have I have taken that shot before on deer and messed up. Um, 
one thing I always try to do is I try to get back off the shoulders as much as possible. Um, a lot of times with the angle of the shoulders of the deer, you only have about a two inch area to slide one through that you wouldn't hit the top of a shoulder blade. And, um, if you do hit the top of the shoulder blade, the shoulder blade will actually deflect the broadhead and take it out and over earlier, stop it, or it'll take it down the side, um, and out of the vital. So I, I try to aim back as much as I can, um, which on that deer I hit back. Um, but I'd made a mistake on that deer when I shot him. I, a lot of guys don't understand that it, when you're drawing your bow and you're elevated and you're shooting down at that drastic of an angle, that if you don't bend at your waist, you'll actually change your anchor point, not knowing it. So essentially, if you just drop your arm and raise your, your back arm, you know, the arm you have the bow pulled back with, you're actually changing your anchor point. And that's going to change. It's going to affect where you hit. So the best thing to do, if you have one that close right underneath you and you think that's the best shot you're going to get, um, is bend at the waist, obviously, and just plan for that arrow to rise about two and a half inches because it's probably going to hit about two and a half inches high from there. But Overall, I mean, you know, if you got a Glendale buck or you got a, you have a target at home that's a that's a deer target, get elevated and shoot down on it, and you'll kind of see the trajectory of what your arrow is going to do. Um, it's a shot I've taken a couple times. I shot a buck um, in Missouri, a really big eight pointer, had really big eye guards, and I shot him kind of the same way, straight down, and I had a little bit different angle on him, um, but not very much. And and you know, you don't usually get a exit wound and that's what makes it tough because you only have a high wound and that's it well deer obviously gravity does not allow them to bleed up so if you hit a lung they'll blow out the top of it but even then that lung collapses eventually and doesn't blow anymore and the deer is still on his feet so he's still going to go another 100 maybe 150 yards if he's in a full out run and die with no blood to follow so that's what makes it really, really complicated is it can be a, a you know, a vital shot, but the blood trail is going to be tough if you don't get that bottom hole. And on both those deer I shot, the one I talked about that and that fuzzy deer, they, neither one of them had a, had a low hole. And, you know, I ended up having to wait um, on that buck. We waited the whole night to go in on him. I went back next morning. He was 80 yards from the stand dead. Like as a crow flies, just 80 yards. He made a button hook and died right there. Um, and I probably could have walked up and got him 10 minutes after I shot him, but with having, you know, knowing I was going to struggle with the blood trail, we just, just got out of there and, um, gave him overnight just to know that he was going to be dead as soon as we could find him, if we could find him. Yeah. So, I mean, when you're making that shot, you, you gotta be very, um, conscious of like where the spine is. I mean, have you ever made a shot and, and messed up and hit the spine and like, how are you ensuring that you're that you're not going to hit the spine are you are you shooting to the right or to the left of it are you conscious of that or you just or how does that how do you think through that yeah absolutely i mean i try you know you've seen guys spine deer before and it i mean you'll knock them down you'll have to kill them or shoot them again to kill them usually but yeah i try to stay off the spine i, I don't aim for the spine at all and what i did on that deer that deer is a little tricky to explain because it's a it's a different angle for what the cameraman stand was and what my stand was was a little bit of a different angle i'm to the right of the mm -hmm. camera guy so i actually have a little bit more of a broadside shot than what he is to the camera he's straight on to the camera i mean head straight towards the tree and everything um i have a little bit of a right of an, on the right side of him 
So I put that arrow, you know, to the right of the spine. You just always try to draw a line straight through. You always think about when you shoot an animal, you always think about your, your arrow being a straight line through him. And you want to make sure that that line goes right through the vitals for the most part. So I kind of, you know, dropped off of the spine, held it low and hit him. I hit him on his second rib from the hand, essentially. So I hit him high and, and straight through that and end up getting one, the tip of one lung and then the liver. Um, and then it went down into the guts and, and stopped there. And like I said, it killed him within 80 yards of, of the stand. He was dead, but it's just, uh, it's more of a, I mean, the best way to practice with it, honestly, is just get a 3d target and start shooting it and really look at where your, you know, kind of where your trajectory is. If your arrow sticking out, okay, say that arrow went straight through, what's that going to hit? Um, to really try to focus it. I mean, I, you know, I had, uh, a trial by fire we rattled the buck in years ago and it was so long ago that we recorded on a on a mini tape like a, you know the mini mini vhs's <laughs> yep i'm very familiar <laughs> so we had a, had a camera in there and, and i rattled this buck in and this buck had pegged us i mean i, I rattled him and and he came running and ran straight to our tree because he knew that's where the sound was and just stood at the bottom of it and i uh leaned over and put it right between shoulder blades and shot ended up hitting one of the shoulder blades and stopping the arrow and the deer lived it was fine showed up on camera a week later and and uh ended up living through the year but you know you just kind of learn through those processes that where you need to be and what you need to aim for and you know i've i'm always scared of the shoulder um i just don't like it you know you can hit a deer in the shoulder and and literally he's going to shake it off and be chasing does that night and just for me, it's a matter of always, you know, always trying to put one through the lungs if you can. And worst comes to worst, if you shoot a deer back, even if you shoot him in the guts, um, if you're diligent and you have enough restraint to where you can give him 10 hours, the deer is going to be dead. He's not going to, he's not going to, um, he's not going to really go far usually unless something gets him up. The only, only real factor you can't control is if coyotes get on him because when coyotes get on, they can get him up and move them everywhere. But if you can gut shoot a deer, you know, if heaven forbid that happens to you, if you can give him 10 hours and just literally get out of there and he won't go far and he'll lay down. And if nothing else gets him up, he'll be dead in that bed in 10 hours. Yeah. Maybe do you have any other like testimonials to like this idea of when in doubt back out? Because like, I know for new hunters and even for people that have hunted for a long time, some people, they just jump the gun, man. I mean, it's like, it doesn't matter if it's uh, bright blood or bubbles or, you know, guts or whatever, they're just, they shot a deer and they want to go check it out. And, and I've done it too. I've done it when I was, when I was younger and I've, I think I've lost a couple deer because of that. But you know, what, what, uh, you know, situations throughout your hunting career has like maybe either taught you that as a hard lesson or was it one that you didn't have to learn? And what advice could you give about that? I mean, there's a, I mean, I had to learn it. I can tell you just, I'm just like everybody else that when you shoot a deer, you want to go put your hands on him immediately. Like you can't, but I, two things have helped me. And I'll tell you, one is I call somebody immediately and I'll call him from the tree usually. Um, and it's one of my hunting buddies or somebody, you know, somebody I know that's out of the situation and I tell him what happened and tell them where it is and tell you know i'm fortunate enough to have video to where we can pull it back and kind of look at the shot mm -hmm. but overall i'm able to do it you, you run through the story with them and really you know um 
a big key, I guess I should set back a second. The big key is after you shoot the deer, watch the deer as absolutely long as you can. Get your binos on him and watch him as long as you can. A big thing to look for is on their tail. If they flap their tail like, I don't even know how to explain it. Like, like a, you know, like the air guys at the um, used, like the used car lots, you know. Guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, those yeah. little, those tall yeah. things, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, if their tail is wagging like really hard and flapping up and down really hard, it's usually a, a vital shot. Um, if a deer mule kicks for the most part, it, it's probably a hard shot. That's probably a vital shot. If a deer hunches up on you, you hit him back. So if he hunches up and tucks his tail and just kind of walks slow, you hit him in the, probably the guts. Guts are way back. Um, so those are kind of things you want to look for. Like you want to immediately look for that when you make the shot. Like, the shot is how the deer reacts to it, right? And if he stops and blows or stops and looks forever and then just takes off bounding, you didn't hit him in the vitals. Like, he's he's probably going to live. Um, I only know of two deer, probably out of 50, <laughs> that I've seen. I've had buddies do them on, on both of them, but I've, I've seen them shoot a deer and that deer stop, you know, 150 yards from the stand or so and stand there and look back at them and then blow and then run off and they've actually found them. But both those guys left those deer overnight and still had to shoot them with another arrow the next day. Like it's a, if, if he stops and blows, um, it's not a vital shot and there's no, like you might as well plan on getting him the next morning. But out of those things, so we do all those things and look at that, and then I'll call somebody that's outside of the situation, right? So I'm going to call my buddy, and I'm going to tell him what's going on. And if you have the right buddy who actually knows and is knowledgeable about deer, he's going to tell you, hey, let's hang on a little bit, or I'll be on the way, wait for me. You know, It's enough time either way to where if he says, hey, let me get my stuff, and I'll come over, and we'll go look for him here in a little bit, um, that gives you a little bit more time, too. But um, another thing is I always tell myself, if I ever am getting pushy, I always tell myself, if he's dead now, he'll be dead in six hours. He'll be dead in five hours. You know what I mean? Whatever the time frame is. If you, if you heart punch a deer and you don't look for him till the morning, guess what? He's going to be dead in the same spot he was dead in that night. But if he's alive, <laughs> he's not going to be. You know what I'm saying? Right. So you really talk yourself down to, if he's dead now, he'll be dead when I get there. And you just got to always err on the side of caution with it. Like we, I mean, the only, the only downside is coyotes may get to him. Um, other than that, that's really it. Like that's the only thing that's going to happen is that coyotes can get to him before you get there. That's the only disadvantage of shooting a deer and not, you know, going and finding them immediately. But, um, I would rather take the, the gamble of a coyote, you know, chewing on a hind quarter of my deer. Um, and knowing I could recover him than to go too early and jump him and never recovering him and having the coyotes eat him somewhere else. I, I don't even know, or even on my property. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you see that, that scenario a lot where, you know, if you get one lung and you know, they get a good breath on that one lung and you jump them, yeah, that could be another mile. I mean, I've seen that happen with me and, and you know, the, the coyotes are going to get a good meal and none of that's going to go to waste, but you might not ever find that deer again. Adrenaline's a weird thing, man. I mean, deer can go so far on a single lung or a single breath, really. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of insane. 
Well, I mean, I, I have a deer that I hit last year. Um, that episode actually should be on full draw here pretty quick, but we had a deer come in that was a five-year-old deer and I, I shot him and I had a, a broadhead malfunction. I was shooting expandables and it didn't open and it didn't get much penetration when it happened, you know, and he ran off and I was like, Whoa, that was, that should not have happened. Cause it was in a great spot, you know? And, uh, I immediately called my buddy, told him what was going on. We watched the video and we're like, okay, we're leaving everything in this tree and we're getting out of here as quiet as possible. We literally left the bow hanging, pulled the camera. The camera is the only thing we took with us and, um, crawled out of the tree and went back to the house played the camera on the big screen with my buddy and he's like yeah something's he's like shot placement's perfect but something's wrong like it didn't go in very far and i'm like yeah so we gave him six hours and uh because we knew it was it was up front right so it's it's up in the vitals right so the only concern is it didn't get all the way through both lungs or you know it got half of the shoulder and that was it so in that situation when you know that's where the shot is the deer is either absolutely going to die or he's absolutely going to live. Like there's, it's just no, there's no question. There's no amount of time I can give that deer. That's going to make him die any faster. If it was a vital shot, it was, it's, you know, it's not so much like a, a gut shot is where it's complicated because he's going to die from that gut shot. It's just a matter of you giving him enough time to go in there. Um, with a shot like this, it was, it was up in the, I mean, right in the pocket, right, right where you'd want it, but it just didn't penetrate much. And so, either that arrow got through and got through the vitals and killed him or it didn't get through and he's going to live. And we gave him six hours, went in, tracked him. It took us three and a half hours to track him about 350 yards. We had lung blood, which is why we continued because another thing is a lot of guys get out there and when they start to track, they just, autom- there's no stopping them, right? There's nothing they could find on that blood trail. That's going to stop them from looking for that deer mm-hmm. where ultimately you got to remember that, you have to be able to get out of there anytime. So if you get in there and you get a hundred yards into your track and you find your arrow and say your arrow doesn't look great, get out. You know what I mean? You always have to be, be willing to get back. If you get into where blood gets thin, just back out, just get out of there. Anytime that you, you know, you run into an obstacle where it starts to put doubt into your brain, just mark the spot and leave and come back the next morning. You're gonna. It's gonna be a lot easier because if you start running out of blood, it's a lot easier to do a body search in the daytime than it is at night. You know what I'm saying? So, oh yeah, you're not look. probably not gonna be too successful with the body search anyways at night. It could be like I've got so frustrated before, and like the deer's like eight feet to my left, and like you can't see more than you. It, it always seems to happen. Like your flashlight dies, or like you have a, you're using your phone light or something, some crap like that. And it, it just gets super frustrating at night, man. It's hard to search for deer even on a, on a good hit at night. Right. Oh, absolutely. And this deer specific I was talking about, you know, we got on him and, and tracked him for like three hours and it, the blood started to really get thin. And I was like, well, he's not killed vitally. Like if you vitally kill a deer, he will not go over 200 yards. It won't happen. You shoot one through the lungs. He's not going to go over 200 yards. She went in the heart. He's not going to go over 200 yards. So we were like, well, Let's back out. We'll do it. So I, I literally took my arrow, stuck it in the ground with the Luminoc on, and we turned around to go, and we jumped him. He was literally like 50 yards ahead of us, and we had just been laying there watching us. And I hear him jump and run through the timber, crashing, and I was like, oh, my gosh. So we left. I went back the next day, found where he was bedded, um, tracked him off of the property, 
So called the landowner of the other property. He said it was a giant bean field, standing beans. He said, yeah, man, you can, you can walk it. So went through there, tracked him a little bit through that, that bean field and then lost him. And so I was like, well, I, I don't know where he is, but you know, he must've lived and come to find out, you know, we won long that I won long him. He, he, I got their broadhead went in. It was an expandable, uh, stayed closed, went through one lung and came right back out, shot right back out of him. And, you know, we had lung blood. We thought we were good on the track and thought we would continue. But after that one lung deflated, there was no more lung blood. And we, uh, ultimately thought, you know, well, heck he's going to be dead on the neighbor, whatever. After walking the whole neighbor's property and walking ours, never uh never found him and checked a checked a camera and he showed up on camera two days later just walking fine and the deer lived and came back this year and we fed him through the winter and fed him all summer and he's probably <laughs> 20 inches bigger than he was last year at six years old oh, so wow. he's got, got a big scar um right where the broadhead went in and uh, he's healthy as all get out. I mean, he's, he's another deer that lives off one lung. And, and, you know, I had a buddy in Kansas three years ago, shoot a 200, I think it was 214 inch deer that had one lung. And sometime in that deer's life, he had got either shot with a bow or gored with it by a buck, but had, uh, had one lung and lived on it and lived his whole life through each other. I mean, he was like five year old, 200 inch deer with one lung. I mean, they can live off one lung and a lot of guys don't understand it, but if they don't get infection in there, it'll heal up and uh, they'll just live off one lung and they can do it 100%. Yeah, that's super wild. What kind of rodhead were you shooting? So it was a Wacom uh, three blade, two inch cut. I love the broad. I, I've killed probably 12 bucks with them over the last three years. I mean, just a phenomenal broadhead. And uh, come to find out, it was actually. I can't blame the broadhead for it because it was my fault. I it was the broadhead that I shoot um, into a targets into like a block target just to make sure my tuning's right. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had bent the blades to where they wouldn't open out of the ferrule. And oh, I, no. I somehow I had mixed it up in my quaver, and that was the uh, that was the broadhead I shot because when I went back went back home that next week and was at home. And I was like, I'm going to shoot this bow and just make sure everything's good on it. Went through all my broadheads. And I didn't have that arrow. <laughs> I didn't have that, you know, that broadhead on. So I was like, Oh no, that was the one I used. And that was, it was a, you know, it was my fault, but overall, you know, it can happen. And it was a, a matter of uh, a learning lesson. And I'm hoping I can catch up to him this year. Cause I think that'd be a pretty good story to have, you know, oh, yeah, have him, of course. Cause I all through growth, completely through growth from May all the way till right now, um, through his growth now. And, you know, he's got the, I, I'd be kind of interested to get him and check out the internal damage of it too and see what it did and kind of what he lived with because he's healthy. He's he's back on his feet and going now. No, that'll be a super cool story. I hope you get to harvest him this year. One one thing that I wanted to, to touch on too was I know that you talked about having some some deals with some brands, some brands that you represent. You talked about making money off selling product. You know, how have you went, how have you went about, uh, you know, creating these partnerships and these brands and, you know, how did you get that process started and what does it, what does it look like now and how does someone, you know, start that? So I think realistically you just have to, like we talked about before, like plan on growing slow, right? So just start a relationship and get the relationship going. I mean, um, if you have any ties with the company or if you can reach out to a company and say, Hey, I've, 
you know, ultimately it takes shooting a product, say, say we're going to say Matthews, for instance, you're going to shoot a Matthews boat, right? So you're going to buy one, you're going to go shoot it, you're going to get a lot of content, a lot of pictures, a lot of good, good marketing pictures of logo and of the bow and all that stuff. And, and, you know, just start kind of reaching out to them and, and giving them stuff to promote, right? So give them stuff to put on their social media, like, hey, I wanted to give this or share it on your social media and tag them in it. Just try to show them that you're you can promote the product and and have a worth with it. Um, the best thing is also too, you know, like we talk about marketing, marketing yourself to where you really build a following to where you can showcase that stuff, right? Because the more following you have and the more people you can touch, the more valuable you are to these people. And ultimately, you know, almost every relationship that I started with, I started with just doing a product thing or a, a deal. I mean, honestly, like. Hey, you get 40% off, whatever. Cool. Let me do that. So I'd take that and I'd, I'd go above and beyond on what I could give them for promotion stuff and then kind of just start building it that way to where you can show your own value in it, if that makes sense. No. Yeah, that makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. So, I mean, is that, what has been one of the, the key defining factors, you know, as far as growing your social following, I know you have a huge following on Instagram and I know that's probably something that you've worked on diligently, you know, putting out content. But what what has been some of the bigger uh, factors of your success? Is it your consistency? Is it the type of content, the quality, or or what is it that has helped you grow that you know that big following? Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, I think it's a matter of you know, I didn't that page, for instance, is not a page that's about technically. I, I guess me. I try not to make it about who I am, like. Uh, like selfies of me and what I, you know what I mean? I, I just mm-hmm. build it off the content. You know, I want to be able to provide my followers with quality content and really quality proof that the products we use, there's benefits to using them over other products. And, and ultimately that's where it came from. I mean, you know, it started as a, uh, as my personal page and then kind of just blossomed into covert was probably one of the bigger, bigger names that really helped it. I mean, being on full drill helped too, but, uh, I know covert, I posted some stuff and they repost a bunch of my stuff now and, and use a bunch of my stuff for, for print ads and things like that. I mean, all that stuff's kind of exposure and you can kind of leapfrog and and kind of snowball off of, you know, the company using your stuff to promote it. Um, We've had some stuff where we've ran, like we worked with Plythal uh, Camo for a while and they would run, you know, ads in North American Magazine or North American Whitetail Magazine and things like that with us on them and full page ads and things like that. I mean, all that kind of helps build your brand and kind of your exposure. But yeah, for social media, I mean, it's just a matter of um, consistency and it's a matter of, of having quality content. You know, there's there's things that we really i mean as you can like you can go mine right now and it's like full of trail camera pictures that's like it's kind of the hot thing to do for me right now that's the big thing of what we're doing and it's really that time of the year that i can build content for covert and showcase kind of their their cameras but it also allows me to showcase you know what we do with big time and allows me to showcase what we do with shock effect the mineral and you know it's just kind of a catch-all to where i can kind of self-promote all of it pretty easily um, I didn't ever want to turn my turn my Instagram into a really hard sell. And in fact, I turned down stuff almost weekly that people come to and say, hey, you know, we'll send you this or we'll pay you this to promote this. And I, I just 
I don't I don't want it to turn it into like a commercial, you know, an infomercial ad. Like it's a matter of I work with the partners I have on social media and and really try to uh, just produce really really quality content and soft sell products as much as we can and to um, kind of you know show what their usage is and show what their benefits are. Yeah, no, I think that's super wise. Like, and and that just goes back to the first five minutes of me talking. You know, speaking your truth, like doing things that you enjoy and using products that you know, only the, something that you can only genuinely represent. So I, I think you're doing it the right way, man. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's been growing, it grew fast, it grows slow, it grows fast, it grows slow, but it's always growing. And that's, that's kind of neat. And it, you know, I, I love the, the outreach of it. One thing for me is somebody told me years ago, you know, the, the less approachable you are, the more valuable you are. And it's kind of funny because when you think about it and you think about sports or you think about movies or any of that, you know, the, the, I guess the awe around people that are famous is that you can't approach them all the time, right? You can't get a hold of them. I can't send, um, I don't know who am I thinking? I can't send Justin Bieber a message and he's going to reply to me, right? He's not Mm -hmm. accessible. But it adds to his value, and that's part of it. And I don't want that for me. And one thing I do that, I mean, I probably spend an hour a day answering questions and and looking at trail camera pictures that other people send me and trying to help people out that way. Like, I try to be extremely accessible on Instagram to where, you know, if guys do have questions or guys, you know, hey, check out this buck or, hey, I've I've got 80 acres, where should I hunt? Or, you know, whatever the question may be, um, I try to be really accessible for that because like I said before, it's just not, that's just not where I wanted to build, you know, where I want to build the brand around is not being accessible. Like, I feel like if I had somebody that was, that I could have accessed when I was 15 years old or 12 years old or 18 years old or 25 years old, you know, I, I would have loved to have it. And I hope that more of the industry becomes accessible because I think, you know, a lot of guys like to think that they're famous and that, that, you know, they don't have time to answer all these questions and do all this, but, ultimately i mean that's what it's about and it's i think that's the biggest thing in the world you can do is help somebody achieve something and make a memory and that's kind of you know when we talk about the outfitting stuff like i honestly enjoy guiding guys to kill the biggest deer of their life because you just made a memory with somebody for a lifetime like you can't put any value on that you know what i mean like yeah that's really the important part of it so that's what i try to do with the instagram page is is really just try to be there as a, as a source of information and, and try to help people if I can. And, and, you know, by no means am I a end all be all of deer hunting and deer management, but I've learned a lot over the years and I have access to a ton of information for it. And, um, man, you know, if I, if I can help somebody kill a deer, uh, I'm all for it, you know? Yeah. I mean, and what you're doing is you're, you're simultaneously, you're simultaneously like, growing the sport of hunting you know i know that they said that hunting's been on decline for i I think several years now and just you know as being someone that's accessible and someone that um can be seen as credible or a thought leader in the industry i mean i think it's awesome that you're you're doing all those things and i I really appreciate the conversation and uh you know i'd I'd love to jump in have you jump back on the podcast sometime you know maybe midway through the season and see how uh how your back to back to back hunts went. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, man. Let me know anytime. I'll try to edge out some time and we'll knock it out.
Cool, man. Well, super valuable. I really appreciate the time, man. And thanks again for, for jumping on here with me. And thanks thanks for downloading <laughs> Skype. I'm sorry for being difficult. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I probably need it anyway because I'm going to be gone for like a month and a half. So it'll be away from me talking to my wife. It's all good. <laughs> right, right. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for consuming the Hunter's Advantage podcast. We really appreciate it. And we really do do the podcast for you all. And just to stay in tune with that and what you guys want to hear, feel free to message us on Facebook or Instagram on who you would like to see on the podcast next.